Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, great. That's better. Praise the Lord. Let's bow our hearts before God. Father, we just ask that you would show us Christ right now as we open up your word. Father, help us, I pray, as we actively listen and wrestle with these truths that we might be as excited and that we might delight in the Son as you delight in him. Oh, help us as we listen and as we leave this place to think of Christ as more precious than when we got here. Grow in us this love and passion that only you can by the Spirit do and accomplish. Bless this study in your word. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen. Well, greetings, dear saints. I want to invite you to open with me back to Matthew chapter 3. As we continue in our study here that we began last week, the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. And as you go there, I don't know how many of you follow British royal family. If you don't, that's okay. I don't blame you. I don't either. But you might know Queen Elizabeth II. Queen Elizabeth II is the reigning monarch of the United Kingdom and other 15 Commonwealth realms. She has been a monarch for almost 70 years, 69 years now, coming up next month, having ascended to the throne in 1952. Not many of us here this morning were born in 1952. Uh, only, only a few, and we praise God for you. Praise the Lord. So in 1952, just hours after her father passed away, and um, you know, according to ancient custom, the death of a ruler was often greeted with this saying, the king is dead, long live the king. The point being made that the throne is never empty. There is always someone on the throne. As soon as one monarch dies, immediately someone else ascends to the throne. However, Queen Elizabeth's the second coronation took place 14 months after she has been given the title the king. 14 months after she or the queen rather, after she ascended the throne. Now this ceremony, coronation is a ceremony in which the crown is placed on the monarch's head. So you can have the throne you can have the rule already, but there's a ceremony at which this crown is placed on your head. It's a very big deal. It's an official recognition of power. It's official recognition of prestige. You mean something. Now in Matthew chapter 3, beginning with verses 11, really beginning with verse 13, we have the divine coronation of the king, King Jesus. We have already seen that a king had been born in chapter 2. We have already seen that he was privately recognized as such in chapter 2 by the Magi. Last week we studied the ministry of John the Baptist who was sent by God to prepare the people of God. To proclaim the kingdom and prepare the people for the coming king. I will remind you, I think as we now get into more deeper into Matthew, that except for Mary and Joseph, Elizabeth, Zacharias, shepherds, wise men, we read of Simeon and Anna, and perhaps just a handful of few others, everyone else is oblivious to the fact that Jesus is king, that a king had been born in the land of Israel. Numerous prophecies had in fact been accomplished and fulfilled in the last 30 years right at this time. The Jews were waiting for centuries for these promises to be fulfilled. And today, this king will be revealed to John and perhaps the crowd around John, but certainly this king will once again be revealed to us. The father will coronate the king 
will crown the king with his spirit and declare him, as we will see at the end of chapter three, to be his beloved son. This one is special. This was unique. And therefore, we ought to pay attention to who this king is and what he came to do. We pick up right where we left off in verse 10. And so I want you to open, if you're not there yet, Matthew chapter 3. We'll begin with verse 10 and we'll read through the end of this chapter. Matthew writes, right in the middle of John's speech, verse 10, the ax is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, permitted, at this time, for in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lightning on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Wow. This morning, I want us to focus on three truths about Jesus from John's and the father's declaration here in these verses. Number one, I want us to see that Jesus is the mighty God. Jesus is a mighty God. Number two, that Jesus, this King Jesus is anointed servant and all the implication of what that means for us and what it meant for him. And number three, that Jesus is the beloved son. Jesus is God's beloved son. So a mighty God anointed servant and the beloved son. If you have your bulletins there in front of you, you can flip it and follow the outline as we go. Number one, I want us to see that Jesus is the mighty God who came to save and judge. Mighty God who saves and judges. You know, as we studied last week, Jesus or John was the herald of this coming king. God specifically sent him, according to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, to prepare the way for Christ who was to come. The way that John would accomplish this God-given task was to preach a very Simple, yet a very sober message. And the message is recorded in verse 2 of chapter 3. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's message was one of repentance. He was calling people to consider the state of their heart and be converted to God. Yet John himself, notice, he realizes who he is. He's not just the man. He understands his call in ministry. He was not the one. His mission was to preach repentance in order to prepare those who genuinely believe by baptizing them so that they can see Jesus. And he didn't want us to, to miss this point. He didn't want anyone coming to him, as we just read in John chapter 1, who came and he says, who are you, John? You're very different. You're a special man, but but here he wants us to realize and to see that he is not the guy. And so in verse 11, he says, there is someone actually who comes right after me. Like there's not going to be a prophet in between me and the prophet, the king. Right after me, one is coming. And notice in verse 11, he is mightier than I. He is mightier than I. He is greater than. Than John. How is he greater than John? Well, John gives us two reasons 
why this man is greater than John. And he compares this man's baptism, Jesus's baptism to his own. And he says, this man is greater because he's a mighty savior. This man is God. Jesus is God who's going to come and save. John's baptism was truly one of a kind baptism. It was a baptism of repentance. It reflected a ritual that, that Jews used to have when they accepted the Gentiles into their fellowship, into the people of Israel. And it was an outward expression of an inward conversion of inward repentance, which prepared one for the coming King. But he says, there is one who's coming verse 11. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming literally the coming one, the expected one, the one who was promised from the old Testament is greater than I. In fact, this one is so mighty that I, John can't even relate to him as a slave. Notice that he says here in verse 11, I am not even fit to remove his sandals. Think about John. John was the most sought after prophet for centuries. People waited for, to hear the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And he says here, I am not even fit to carry the sandals. To, to untie and, and carry the sandals of the one who's coming after me. This lowly task was reserved for a slave in those days where, where he would remove the sandals from his master or from the guests of those who were received by his master and then would, would wash their feet. And, and think about this. You remember in John chapter 11 or chapter 13, rather, right? John chapter 13, where, where the mighty one himself, the king of kings, Jesus Christ, sets an example and stoops down and does what? Washes the feet of his disciples. And John here says, I, 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 I am so, this guy is so mighty. He is so high. He is so exalted. He is so other than anyone we've seen before that I am not fit to do this for him. What a humility that John displays here. Now, why is Jesus so great and why is he mighty? Because Jesus is the God who saves. Jesus is the one who saves. He says, this one, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The end of verse 11. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. His baptism is greater than mine is what John is saying. John's baptism was in essence preparatory. What he did was he prepared the way. He prepared for people to receive. Now, Jesus' baptism, it inaugurated the coming of the messianic age. This is it. This is the one who is special. And, and, and no doubt that this announcement here, that there's, a, that there's a man who's coming right after John, and he will be able to baptize people with the Holy Spirit. No, ma no, no doubt it thrilled many of his hearers. You see, baptism with the Holy Spirit, this expression, baptism or, or anointed or pouring out the Holy Spirit is not a New Testament concept per se. It's an Old Testament doctrine. And so when they heard this, they, they, they went back to the Old Testament that is full of prophecies that at one point God himself will pour out his spirit on all mankind this was, this was absolutely breathtaking news to John's hearers. I'll just remind you of a couple of places from the Old Testament. In Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, the prophet writes, it will come about after that, that God says, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions even on the male and female servants, I will pour out of my spirit in those days. Ezekiel 36, beginning with verse 25 says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and, and I will put a new spirit within you. 
And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. I mean, John's announcement here was great news for the people. It was, it was profound. It meant that the new covenant age is upon them. And think about this. Think about what he's saying. Just what I quoted right now. This is God, Yahweh himself in the Old Testament saying, I will pour out my spirit. And here John is saying, this one who is coming right after me and you're about to see him now, he is going to do that for you. Yahweh himself, the very God is about to enter the scene and he will baptize you with his spirit. What does that mean for us? Well, that means that Jesus is God. If God made this promise in the Old Testament that I will do it, and John says, this man does it, that means Jesus is God. The king is the mighty God who will cause his people to walk in holiness. Jesus is God who accomplishes his salvation for his people. And we know what happened, right? Those of us who have the benefit of the full revelation, we know when we read Acts chapter 2 that that's exactly what happened. The Holy Spirit came down as soon as Jesus completed his work, ascended to the Father. He sends down his Holy Spirit. And throughout the book of Acts, as the church is being developed, he continues to send the Holy Spirit. And today, we who believe in the Son, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, we are baptized, automatically baptized, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and we have the very God in us. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John is saying, listen, don't get it wrong. I'm just preparing the way for this king. But the king brings salvation. If you want to be saved, if you want to be baptized with that baptism, look to him, look to Jesus look to the promised king. He will plunge you into the spirit so that you are made new. Remember Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus, one of the one of Pharisees who John just rebuked Pharisees here in, in verse seven, and he comes to Jesus at night and he says, "Listen, you're a great man." We hear a lot of great things about you. Can I learn more about you? Tell us who you are. You're intriguing. There's something different about you. And Jesus cuts to the chase and he says, you must be born of the spirit. You must be born again. You must be born of the spirit. And he was pointing to his ability to do that. You need me. You need to believe in me. But listen, Jesus is not the God who only saves and baptizes people with his spirit. He's also the God who judges. Oh, and this is very clear here in verses 10, 11, and 12. His message is so stern. John's message is stern because in connection to his saving ministry, this king comes in order to judge in order to judge those who refuse to repent and those who refuse to acknowledge the king. He says he will not only baptize you with the Holy Spirit, but he will baptize you with fire. Now, many commentators interpret this, this fire baptism as being part of the Holy Spirit's baptism. And um, some point out to the manifestation of the fiery tongues that appeared in Acts chapter 2, and so they connect this fire with the Holy Spirit as if it's like a purifying fire spirit baptism. But if you look at the tongues that appeared, right, in, uh, to the disciples in Acts chapter 2, they appeared like fire. They were not literally fire. And even though fire was often used in the Old Testament as a means to refine God's people, we must look at this immediate context in order to find out the exact interpretation of fire. And so it's instructive for us that John uses fire three times. Look at verse 10 at, or uh, yeah, verse 10 at the very end, thrown into the fire. 
Verse 11, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And verse 12, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John clearly uses fire to represent God's judgment in verses 10 and 12. And so it is very unlikely that this middle term, also fire, would mean something completely different, as if it's a cleansing agent. No, what John is saying, in effect, this mighty God, the King of Kings, who is coming right after me, he is the God who not only saves, but this is the one who has the authority to judge and send you to hell. Isn't that what Jesus mentioned later on in Matthew? So there, there, there's this contrast between the believers who repent and will be baptized right with the Holy Spirit and the unbelievers who refuse to repent and they will be baptized with the fire of God's judgment. Messiah, John proclaims, comes to do two important things. Look at verse 12. To gather wheat into the barn and to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, John already used this um, illustration of an axe, and he says, listen, don't delay to repent. The axe is already up in the air, and all it takes is just one swing to sever the root that does not bear to sever you from the root if you do not bear fruit of repentance. And now he uses this another illustration, his winnowing fork, the winnowing fork. Now, this fork was used What they did during the wheat harvest is they would pile up all the wheat. They would throw it up probably on the hill where there is uh, wind. And then they would just step on it, step on all the wheat, and they would separate the kernels from the chaff. And then what they would do afterward is they would take this fork and and they would would, um, throw up the wheat, right? They would throw it up and then the wind would blow and all the heavy kernels would fall to the ground, but the chaff would be what? driven away with the wind. And this is what he says here. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean his threshing floor. It's where they gathered everything. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The chaff will be collected and the chaff will be burnt up. He will gather one group and he will burn the other. And Jesus, notice, will perform both of these functions the saving and the judging. Jesus is both the savior and the judge. And obviously, as I mentioned last week, these two functions will be done at two different times. For John, the Old Testament prophet, he looks at it and he says, the coming kingdom and the coming king means this, saving and judging right there and then, right away. But for us, right, we know that Jesus came first time to save And then the other function is separate from the first, at least 2,000 years now. Jesus will come the second time to judge. And speaking of that future time later on in Matthew 25, Matthew writes, these will go away into eternal punishment. The chaff who are gathered up in order to be burnt up, but the righteous into eternal life into the barn into God's kingdom the everlasting kingdom John's own baptism with water is only preparatory for the coming mighty work of Jesus who arrived to thresh his wheat and to burn the chaff and to burn the chaff friends if God was ready to judge the people then How ready is he to do it now? We are much closer to this final event today than John ever knew. And it is only the mercy and grace of God that delays this judgment, but it is coming. It is coming. Let us not get used to God's patience. Let us not think of God's patience as if he forgot God knows, God determined, God planned, and he is coming quickly as we read recently in Revelation 21 and 22. He is coming quickly. And friends, if your life 
is not characterized by true repentance, which is a life that continues to bear good fruit. And not a life of perfection, but a life in the direction of godliness. Be careful. Friends, be careful. Be warned. John says, repent, abandon sin, run to the mighty Savior who will empower you by his spirit to love and obey him. Listen, Jesus majors in saving people. Jesus accomplishes salvation, but he also majors in judgment. And that time is coming. Church, that time is coming. Jesus Christ is the Savior, the Lord, the King, and he is the judge. He's the mighty God who does both the saving and the judgment. And he will, notice in verse 12, thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. I mean, John could have just said, you know what? He he will clean out his threshing floor. Why would he put thoroughly here? It's because he doesn't want us to be confused. He wants this to be loud and clear that what God determined to do, no one is going to escape his judgment. No one is going to escape God's scrutiny. He will do it. Are you prepared to see the king, friend? Can you testify that the spirit of Christ is in you now, producing good fruits that is acceptable to God? We need to think about that. We need to dwell on this truth. But we move on to our second point. King Jesus is the anointed servant who suffers for sinners. King Jesus is the anointed servant who suffers for sinners. We, we don't know how long John preached in the wilderness. Uh, we don't even know how long it took Jesus to come and, and, um, and be baptized here. We know from Luke, right, that John the Baptist was at least six months exactly older than Jesus. And so many assume that if Jesus began his ministry at around 30, that John did the same thing. So maybe he's out there calling out in the wilderness for six months, just pleading with people, come to Jesus, look at him, repent, repent of your sin. And we know that this particular event that's recorded in verses 13 through the end of this chapter is a very important event. It's significant since This is one of handful events that all four gospels record, every single one of them. For the past 30 years, Jesus had been tucked away in Nazareth. And except for one episode when he was 12, Jesus had been silent. And then look at verse 13. Then comes Jesus. Then comes Jesus. There's a great purpose in these words, right? This is no trip to to the grocery store. I mean, this is a 70-mile trip to Jordan Valley from where Jesus was before to where John was ministering. That time hath come. This is what, what the whole emphasis is in verse 13. The time is now. The time to end the silence has come. Time to be revealed. Time to begin. Listen, Time to begin his march to the cross. This is it. This is the king's coming out, his coronation ceremony. But but just think about this. Jesus, the God incarnate, Emmanuel, verse chapter one, God with us. Colossians chapter one, the creator and sustainer of all things. He leaves the obscurity of Nazareth and comes to the bank of Jordan as if another typical Jew would to be what? To be baptized by John, verse 13. Jesus is the sinless one who who always did what was directed by the father. He says in, in John eight, he says, I only do that which the father tells me to do. And he's coming to John to submit under his baptism. 
This is shocking way to begin your ministry. And no one is more shocked than John himself because John is trying to prevent him, verse 14, and saying, I need to be baptized by you. What are you doing? What are you doing? Now, John had just announced that this Jesus is mightier than him. He's the very God, the Savior, and the Judge. But second, John's baptism is of repentance. What sins does Jesus need to confess? What's going on? Why is he coming to John? And church, this is, this is important for us at this juncture to just affirm one thing that we hold dear and one thing that we believe that Jesus Christ is spotless and he is sinless. He has no sin. I mean, every single author of the New Testament went out of his way to tell you about that. First Corinthians five, Paul writes, he, the father made the son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, who knew no sin. What does that mean? He wasn't aware of the concept of sin. No, it means he did not experience sin. He didn't know it experientially. He never sinned. That's Paul. Peter in first Peter chapter two, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Jesus is spotless. He is sinless. First John three, five, you know that he appeared in order to take away sin, Jesus. And in him, there is no sin. And then the, the author of Hebrews in verse 15 of chapter four says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, but check this out yet without sin. I mean, this is crucial doctrine for us that we must affirm and that we must believe because our savior is sinless. He's not saving anyone from their sins. If he is sinful, if he has any sin at all credited to his account, he never transgressed the law nor the will of the father. Wow, and it should just blow our minds because every time we think of someone, every time we think of us, we don't know of another person who has this testimony. Yet here he is with John in the waters of baptism. And you can understand John's refusal in verse 14. He is reluctant to, to baptize Jesus. Now, as we read at the beginning from John chapter 1, According to John chapter one, John is not aware that Jesus is the Messiah. It's only after the fact, after he was baptized, that John actually was like, wow, okay, this is the one. The, for sure, I know it, it's him. Yet, this account here in Matthew indicates that John at least knew of Jesus and may at least have suspected that he could have been the Messiah. In other words, think about this. D.A. Carson writes, whether John knew Jesus well, we do not know. It is, however, inconceivable that his parents had not told him of Mary's visit to Elizabeth some three decades earlier. At the very least, John must have recognized that Jesus, to whom he was related, again, they were cousins, whose birth was more marvelous than his own, and whose knowledge of scripture was more profound, even as a child outstripped him. We see that, that John the Baptist was a humble man. He, his admission in verse 14 that he needs to be baptized at least shows himself to be less than Jesus. But more than that, he's like, I am a sinner in need of baptism from you. And the, the language of verse 14, he says he tried to prevent. Um, it's emphasized there. He kept on trying. You're like, I am not going to let you do this. He kept on trying over and over. You're not, I'm not baptizing you. You're not getting baptized with me. Baptize me. This is what you need to do. I know who you are, or at least I suspect that you are more righteous than I. And he's repulsed at the idea that his cousin, Jesus, wants to be baptized. It just seems backwards to him. And notice the contrast in verses 7 and 8 of this chapter, John had difficulty baptizing Pharisees and Sadducees because they were not worthy of his baptism. 
Now he has trouble baptizing Jesus because his baptism is not worthy of Jesus. So I'm not going to baptize them because they're, they're ignorant of the truth. But I'm not baptizing you because you need to be baptizing me. And how does Jesus respond in verse 15? Permitted at this time, he says, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I mean, think about it again. Our Savior, our, our Lord, God incarnate, the creator of the world, coming to baptism and submits himself as the rest of us would, as the rest of the Gentiles, as if he needs repentance, identifying with sinners. You're right, John. Any, any other time, this would be illogical. But right now, Jesus says, allow it. At any other time, this would be unthinkable. But right now, in this very moment in history, allow it because it fulfills all righteousness. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled in efforts to explain the precise meaning of what this means. What righteousness are they fulfilling? What righteousness is Jesus fulfilling? And I have to admit, it's difficult to land on any one specific interpretation because uh, here or anywhere else in the New Testament, we, no one else refers to, to this specific event. But consider Christ's statement here. He says, by doing this, by you baptizing me, we fulfill, we accomplish God's righteousness. So the inverse of this would be if you prevent this action right now, this would be unrighteous. Now, we have to understand what righteousness means, what righteousness is, specifically righteousness, the use of righteousness in Matthew's gospel. Because one thing that we need to keep as we, in mind as we read our Bibles that not every author specifically means what the, author, the other author means by using the same term, okay? So the righteousness here that Matthew talks about is different than Paul's use of righteousness in his letters. It has a slight different nuance. In Matthew's gospel, righteousness is primarily a moral term, moral term. You do what is right. Paul's use of righteousness, for instance, in Romans is supremely the righteousness of God that is credited to you through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, we'll get to this concept of righteousness a little bit later, especially as we study the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7. But we have already seen Matthew use this, this word here. Flip back to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 19. And it says, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, being a righteous, immoral, and upright, he did what was right. Therefore, he didn't want to marry Mary because she appeared being pregnant at a wedlock. And so being the right man, being the moral man, he did what was right before the Lord. So when John or when Jesus says that this act of baptism accomplishes all righteousness, he means that it is God's will that John baptizes him. It's a proper thing. It is fitting, he says, to do that because this very act will accomplish God's righteousness. All of God's righteousness. And this baptism is one of many acts of righteousness. One of many steps of doing the right thing before God. And right now, I want you to do this for me because God wants you to do this for me. At this time, at this time, look at this, permitted at this time only. Jesus is saying that John's objection is valid in principle, but he must at this point in salvation history baptize Jesus. For this will coronate Jesus as the promised servant who will come and suffer for his people. This will identify the Messiah and will bring John's ministry to a close. This act right here will introduce the one and will diminish the other. That's why in, in John 3.30, John says he must increase and I must decrease his ministry and his work will increase, and, and my ministry and my work will decrease because he's more important. And, and that's enough for John. Uh, if this is the right thing to do, and Jesus is telling me to do this, let's do it. So what, in verse 16, then he, or at the end of verse 15, then he permitted him. And look what happens next. In verse 16, 
after being baptized. As soon as Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens open up and the spirit of God, we read, descends on him like a dove. After being baptized, Jesus comes up and behold, behold. Matthew wants you to see something. This is extraordinary. Behold, the heavens were opened. There are only a handful of times where the, hand, the, the heavens were opened and they were recorded in scripture. And this is one of them. And he saw the spirit. Who is he? Most naturally, that refers to Jesus. But we know from John's gospel that John also saw and John knew as Jesus or as the Holy Spirit was descending upon Jesus. And we're not sure about others. We're not really sure how many people, the other crowds, whether they saw him or not, whether they saw this thing, they may have, but uh, we just simply don't have any textual evidence for that. But he wants you to see, behold, the spirit of God is descending. This is God's approval. It's an amazing sight. The spirit anoints Christ. This is one of a kind event. No one had experienced this kind of baptism before. This right here is very significant. Why? Well, if you have your Bibles, go back to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42, please. About 700 years before Isaiah prophesied that there will be a man. In fact, he called this man a servant. And later on in his servant songs, as we will see, this servant will be a suffering servant and his coming will be special. In Isaiah 42, one, it says this, behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom my soul delights. And look at this. I will put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This very verse is quoted by Matthew in Matthew chapter 12. But, but this servant here, if you flip with me to, to Isaiah, keep going forward to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, verse 13, again, picking up this theme again of, of the servant who will be baptized or who will be rather anointed by the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, behold, my servant will prosper. Verse 14, many will be astonished at you. And look what it says. So his appearance was marred more than any man and, and his form more than the sons of men, thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had been told to them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. And then Isaiah 53, this entire chapter is about the suffering of the servant. Right? Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, men of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom... Men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. And go forward to one other passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 66, or Isaiah 61, rather. Isaiah 61, verse 1, Isaiah writes, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. And this is the very passage that Jesus later on in Luke four, when he gets into the synagogue, he asks for the scroll of Isaiah, opens it up to Isaiah 61, one reads this, rolls it up, sits down and says today, this scripture has been fulfilled. The Jews were waiting for God's anointed. He is God's chosen servant. He came to suffer for sinners and to release the captives. This one will suffer for sinners and will what? He will deliver God's favor to them. Go back to Matthew chapter three. Look at this. The second person of the Trinity descends like a dove. And we don't know 
exact symbolism, why, why that happened of dove, like a dove, wasn't a dove, but it appeared like a dove descending on Jesus. If you look at other passages in scripture that refer to doves, for instance, in Leviticus, doves were the only birds allowed for sacrifice, acceptable for sacrifice. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus mentions be innocent as doves. And so the symbolism here is of sacrifice, innocence, gentleness. Amazing. Jesus is crowned with the spirit. The expected one, the coming one is the spirit anointed Messiah. But listen, church, this is not it. Uh, This is not all. I, I want you to see something significant here that Jesus is the anointed servant who came not only to suffer and rightly so, but to instruct and to leave us an example. What do I mean by that? Think about this. Why did Jesus need the spirit to indwell in him and to empower him? Jesus is fully God, right? Jesus is fully God. What could the spirit of God contribute to his deity? Absolutely nothing, right? Absolutely nothing. He's God. He already has God. But but what could the spirit of God contribute to his humanity? Jesus is 100% man. And the spirit of God contributes everything he lacked in his human nature. There's a book that's written by Bruce Ware, The Man Christ Jesus, which was very helpful to me personally in seeing the ministry of Christ as as being fully man, depended fully on the spirit. If, If you want to learn more about that, I suggest you pick up that book. But in this book, Gerald Hawthorne, he He quotes Gerald Hawthorne's and he says, the presence of the Holy Spirit in Jesus's life is one of the most significant biblical evidence of the genuineness of his humanity. For the significance of the spirit in his life, life's precisely in this, that the Holy Spirit was the divine power by which Jesus overcame his human limitations, rose above his human weakness and won out over his human morality. The spirit accomplished that. I mean, do you get it? The reason why, why Jesus was able to overcome his limitation was not because he was God, but because he relied fully on the spirit of God as a full man. There's, a, there's an interesting verse in Acts 2.22. This is the first sermon that Peter gets up and he preaches and he's fired up because Acts 2 just happened, right? Pentecost just happened. And he gets up there and he says, men of Israel, Listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God, here it is, with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him, very interesting phrase here, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you also know. It doesn't say Jesus performed them directly. God performed these things through him. What's the significance of that? Well, the significance is that the spirit of God performed these work through Jesus. Church, in his humanity, Jesus Christ was fully submitted to the Holy Spirit, and it is a lesson for us today. This is not only to show that he's the Messiah, but also how we should live our lives. Aren't we filled with the same Spirit, same Holy Spirit? Yeah, we sure are. I mean, think about this. Just in the next chapter, you can flip there. Matthew chapter 4, he was able to fully endure the temptation because he was God or because he relied on the spirit of God. Verse one, the, then Jesus was led by the spirit into wilderness. I mean, why would, why would the study of a life of Christ be of any value to us if everything can be chalked up to his deity? Well, he's God, duh. Why, why would I? Uh, so what? Why is that an example? I mean, look at verse like 1 Peter 2.21. 1 
For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Think about what Peter is saying here. Look to Jesus and follow in his footsteps. I mean, this is amazing, right? You can't follow in the steps, in his steps, if, if he walked in the shoes that only fit God. But he's also a man. And it gives us great comfort to know that we can follow him if we do what he did. But we'll look more on that next week. Finally, I just want you to focus on verse 17. Oh, this is great. Number three, King Jesus is the beloved son who delights the father. He says, and behold, again, verse 17, a voice out of the heavens. The second person of the Trinity comes upon Jesus. And the first person, the father, gives his hearty approval of his son from heaven. It's a place of God's abode. For 400 years, remember, not a single word from God came to his people. Now John comes, and a few months later, heavens rip open, and the very voice of God speaks to his people. Talk about a special time in history. And the voice is identified, identifies this one, this Jesus, as the son. This is my beloved son. And if the voice identifies him as son, then... The, it is the voice of the father. And I love the, how precise the original here is in verse 17. It sounds like this. This one is my son, the beloved. This one is my son, the beloved. What a unique relationship. I mean, you, you're reminded of the eternal bond between the father and the son from all eternity. The Trinity is one in fervent love, united by the spirit. And then Jesus takes on the body descends down to earth. What an act of condescension and humility. And now at the start of his ministry, the father says, blows up the heavens to announce, that's my son. That's my son. You know, sometimes we're proud of our children when they do something great. And we just like, we, I don't know, we don't mind if, if people see that, you know. And, and like, that's my kid. Good job. It's great. Way to go. I taught him that. And, and think of the father right now, just looking down from him and says, this is my son. This is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. And again, what's the significance of this statement? This is not for Christ. Christ knows who he is. Yeah, this is for John. This is for for the people who may have heard, but this is for us and those who read the Bible. Friends, do you sit here this morning and, and doubt that Jesus is the son of God, that he is the promised Messiah? The father himself this morning testifies to you that this Jesus who we preach is the very son of God who's anointed by his spirit. These aren't just cute messages and, and lovely sayings. These are divine statements that just should, should rattle us to the core. This is my son. Because if what God says is true, then I must follow the son. Then I must delight in the son just as the father delights. I must love the son. Friend, do you love and do you respect the son as the father does? Because to dishonor the son means to dishonor the father. This is what the son said in Matthew or in John 5. He says, he who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. You can love God and, and not love Christ and not follow him. Jesus says, you're a liar if you do. Do you love God's son? Do you love God's beloved you know, three times the word beloved is used to and attributed to Jesus in Matthew. But check this out. Later on in the letters, as we read different epistles to, to individuals and, and to the churches, who do you think this, this term beloved is attributed to? To the church. To the church. 
We studied Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Beloved. The father identifies his son, right? As one whom he treasures. All of God's affections are directed towards this one man, towards his son. He is the, think of it, he is the supreme attractions of heaven and of earth. The father delights in him. He is, he says, well pleased in him. And and get this, the only reason we are now called God's beloved is because of his son. Because of us. It's because of Jesus. Because of our union with his son. Jesus is God's beloved. And because we have confessed Jesus Christ as our Lord, the father is glorified in the son and loves us just as much as he loves the son. John 17, verse 22, the glory which you have given me, this is Jesus's prayer. He says, I've given it to them that they may be one just as we are one. I am them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Check this out. So that the world may know that you sent me and you love them even as you have loved me. Wow. Father says, I delight in my son because Jesus always pleased and honored me. He's perfectly obedient to the father. Jesus is always motivated to bring the father all the glory. The father fully approves the ministry of Christ and and coronates him here as the king, the suffering king. Church, here's the call. Here's the so what of the passage. Do you, what do you do with Jesus? Do you love and do you honor him? Do you delight in the son of God today? Or perhaps you mock him. It's going to be the final passage. Sorry, Matthew 27. Think about this. Matthew 27, verse 41. This is Jesus hanging on the cross with this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, sign hung right above him. And look what verse 41 says. And in the same way, the chief priests, the, the, the same group of folks who were before reluctant to repent, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of, the, of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and, and we will believe him. And look at this. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. What they were saying that looking at him, if, if you're the son of God, and if the father delights in you, Now, why exactly are you on the cross? If the father cares for you and he loves you, why did he allow this to happen to you? And they were mocking him. Get off of there. Let's just wait. Let's just wait and see if the father is loving enough to remove Jesus off the cross, let's don't, don't bug. Let's see. But you know the story. We know the end of the story. Jesus was treated like us, even though he was far from it. We just read it. He never committed a single sin. Oh, church, behold the son, the suffering servant who for the first time here on the cross experiences God's displeasure not because he failed to please him in one way or another, but because he took our sin on the cross so that we too would be loved by the Father in heaven. Are you moved to worship the Son, to love God, to obey the Son, to delight in him? Friend, if you're not, then you're as dead as a rock. Cold stone. 
You need to repent. You need to trust Christ because Jesus came to save. But remember also that he came to judge. Believe in the Son, worship him, delight in the Son. Father, you delight in your Son. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us to always look to Jesus because we are in him. We are in the beloved, and we are the beloved because of him. May we never, this illustration never escape our notice. The only way we can receive acceptance is because of what Jesus came to do. He was crowned a king. He was anointed by the spirit, and he's able to give the spirit to us who drives our focus and vision to Jesus in whom your soul delights. Oh, help us to do the same. Amen.